Welcome to the All About Setwork podcast. In this podcast, we talk about all things setwork. That can include training tips, a behind-the-scenes look of what your instructor or trial official may be going through, and much more. In this episode, we want to talk about what are some of the things that are completely cringeworthy that trial officials witness at separate trials. <laughs> Before we start diving into the podcast episode itself, let me do a very quick introduction of myself. My name is Diana Sejos. I am the owner and lead instructor for Setwork University, Dogsport University, and Pet Dog U. These are online dog training platforms that are designed to provide high quality dog training instruction to as many people as possible. We're very fortunate to have a client basis worldwide. For Setwork University in particular, we provide online courses, seminars, webinars, and eBooks that are all designed to help you achieve your Setwork training goals. So whether you're just getting started in Setwork, you're looking to develop some more advanced skills, or if you are getting ready to trial, we have a training solution for you. If you guys know a little bit more about me, let's dive into the podcast episode itself. So in this episode, we are going to be having a roundtable discussion with several of our instructors that we are very fortunate to have share their expertise with us <laughs> regarding the topic of what they may find to be cringeworthy when they are officiating trials or when they're attending a trial. So the people who are involved in this discussion include Michelle Ellertson, Michelle Dorham, Cara Schutzner, and Michael McManus. So we are very, very fortunate to have all of them involved. So we're going to jump right into the discussion. And the first person that we hear from is Michael McManus. So Michael, what is something that makes you cringe as a setwork instructor, either in your classes or particularly when you are officiating at a trial, you see a dog and handler team doing something like, why are you doing that? <laughs> so I just got to officiate at an ORT. So I got to see a lot of these things again, firsthand. And it's always fun to watch at a very beginning level because it's easy to forget what it was like back then. And then I probably made all the same mistakes when I did it, but I'll grab the first, like the lowest hanging fruit which is the, the most obvious one, which is show me. I don't know. I, I, I know I'm not the only one that gets annoyed about that, but I hate it when a dog is alerting, especially on ORT and is alerting really well. And then just like, show me, where is it? I don't know. It uh, drives me crazy. It's like, just say alert. If you can say that, say alert. Perfect. I think that's a great way to start us off with. <laughs> and then I think in the second go around, we'll talk about some of the, the things as instructors that we may be able to impart on our students to maybe have them not do these things potentially. All right, Ms. Cara, it's your turn. What, what makes you cringe as a trial official? I have to narrow it down to one. <laughs> I would say my biggest thing that annoys me is not rewarding the dog at all. Like not at all. Not even like good job. Like they find it and they just, I don't know, space. I have no idea what happens, but that, that's one of my big ones, so. Another excellent one. Yes, I think we all agree on that. Thank you. <laughs> and Michelle Dorham, what is something that you see dog and handler teams doing a trial that just absolutely makes you cringe? It would depend on which side of the line I'm on. If I am volunteering, I would have to say that seeing people lead their dog around the search as if they are a vacuum, like physically directing their dog and leading them throughout the space. It's a really good thing that I have to stay quiet, right? Like you're closing my mouth, my mask is on, I'm gritting my teeth. Like you can't even see the face I'm making, which is a good <laughs> thing. 
it's so, so frustrating to me. If I'm on the other side of the line in the parking lot as a competitor, I work with uh, various dogs at various levels and it makes me shudder to hear people use the term lie, that their dog lied to them, et cetera, et cetera. It, it makes me want to crawl out of my skin. And that's a really good point. And I think it's important for us, even in this, this discussion, to remember that there may be people who have different hats when they're at a trial. So I think, you know, what Michelle Dorm just pointed out is that there are times you may be a volunteer, you may be a trial official, you may also be a competitor. And I think all those different perspectives can help us maybe as instructors imbue in our own students how they can maybe avoid these things. <laughs> so Michelle Ellertson, what is something that you've experienced as a trial official that kind of makes you cringe when you're officiating at a trial? So, I mean, I am doing a, a talk about this. So yep. really I have many, but um, the one that really pops into, into mind as a CO, when I'm deciding what the challenges are gonna be for the day, one of the things that I always think about is what is the handler going to do to prevent the dog from finding this particular hive? Like what, what, what are the handler foibles that are going to inevitably happen that are going to prevent this dog from finding this hive? and thresholds come into mind. So if I put out a threshold hide, I can almost guarantee that I have made at least 50% of those dogs' lives harder, not because the dogs can't do thresholds, but because the handler is going to apply some pressure to get them through the door, which is going to apply pressure to the dog to move on, which is going to bump them out of the scent cone or whatever. It's going to be much harder for that dog to withstand the pressure. So Either the dog is going to let go of the threshold height altogether and they're not going to find it and then that's a miss, or the dog's going to have to go all the way into the room, they're going to have to do a loop, they're going to have to work their butts back to the threshold in order to get that hide that they very could have eased. So rushing the threshold from the handler is definitely a pet peeve of mine. And that's an excellent point of, and I, I hope that anyone who's listening to this podcast can really appreciate that when you have someone thoughtfully designing a search for you at trial, the fact that they have to put that into consideration <laughs> is just something I really hope that you can take to heart, that they're sitting there going, oh, the dog should be able to get this, but what is this person going to do? <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on, on, a, on a limb and just say, like, we want you to find the things. Like we're setting up that test so that, yeah, it's an appropriate level test. We're not trying to trick you. Like we're not trying to make anything outside of the bounds of, of what you're capable of doing, but with trial nerves come easiers that you probably wouldn't even do in training, but there they are. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I think that was a good first round. I think we can always open up the floor for more. And again, some of these may also be covered in Michelle Ellertson's webinar. She's going to be doing for us. I mean, which, I'm which... taking notes right now. Perfect. So. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And we definitely urge everyone to take that webinar because it's good for you to know what we as, again, instructors and trial officials see and we're going, oh, why are you doing that? And some of it very well may just be trial nerves. It may also be what seems to happen in the industry or in, in our community that something starts like the show me that Michael was talking about. And then one person does it. And then before you know, it's across the country and everyone's doing it. You're like, well, how did that happen? 
<laughs> so it's kind of like an infection. So now I want to start off with Michael again, based off of what we've noted so far, as far as things that are making us cringe. Can you name another one? And I'm sure you'd have an easy time doing this. And then also on top of that, add in what you may be doing with your clients to try to prevent them from doing that thing, but they tend to do it anyway. <laughs> I'll start with the another cringe while I think about what to do about it. So the next cringe is when people um, turn their back completely on their dog. This is a big one for me. And I think there's a lot of different reasons people turn their back on the dog and, and there are good ones and there are bad reasons, but even if it's a good reason, there's a better way of doing whatever you're trying to do without turning your back on your dog. Like you need to see something that's behind you. Okay, great. So step to the side so you can see behind you and still see your dog or something like that. But don't turn your back on your dog. You don't know when the dog's going to do something that's really important for you to have seen. Um, and, and, you know, that's really important competitively for noticing changes of behavior in your dog, but it's also really important safety wise. And maybe this is something that's uh, not immediately apparent to to people who uh, don't work with dogs with fear issues or aggression issues or things like that. But just like, don't take your eyes off your animal that you took out in public is a good rule generally. Exactly. Very well said. And then what do you do for the client who may be given that piece of advice and yet you're there officiating yeah. or coaching or there and there they are either going to the search area or back again. And they're off in la la land and their dog is like, Oh, look, there's a dog. I like to yell at. <laughs> yeah. So I think the reason people do these things, because uh, for the most part, like, especially like if we go back to the show me example, they, my students don't do that in class. They wouldn't dare do that at class. Maybe they do it once. I don't allow it. Um, but they'll still do it at trial. And I think the reason people do any of these things in a competition is because they're stressed. And, you know, we all know that animals, including people, act different under stress. And so what I try to do to help my students with it is to stress them out more regularly in my classes so that they learn how to function under stress. Uh, that's kind of my approach to most of these kinds of things. And hopefully then they can... Uh, work through those issues and, and, and they are less likely to pop up in trial, but I know they're still going to pop in trial and that's okay. Uh, as you know, you're going to make mistakes in trial. I still make mistakes in trial and you just have to recover for them and then realize like, don't get into a superstitious behavior where you said, show me and it worked. And then you don't stop saying, show me anymore. That that's a real major issue. So you have to make sure as an instructor that you're following your students trial habits and make sure to correct these habits early. Uh, because they can snowball out of control if you're not paying attention. Very good point. Thank you very much. Miss Cara, what is another thing that you find cringeworthy? And then even if you have pointed it out to your students, you may find that they're still doing it at trial. So um, I like it when, and I'm being sarcastic with this, when they have the six or seven foot leash and they're like right up their dog's butt, <laughs> so I uh I find that very cringeworthy I'm like why even bother with a leash or they see interest and they step in they put a lot of pressure especially if they have a new dog and they're they're a young team I, I'm like what what's the point of having the leash anyway so th that I find that cringeworthy because everyone seems to step in when they see their dog has interest or showing some change of behavior and they're right up on their butt and they can't see the whole picture of the dog so in class, we practice on when you want to step in, when you make that conscious effort to move forward, you're going to move two feet back or whatever. 
So that's what I try to do with my students in class is try to get them to move back into the side so they can see the whole picture of the dog. Because um, I know at a trial, and we've all done this, I personally have done this, we get nervous. And so there's something about the umbilical cord is what I call that leash. So when we're nervous, we get closer to the dog instead of getting further away and letting the dog be able to work. And if you have a large dog and it needs to turn around suddenly and you're right up on its body, or its body, it doesn't have that ability. And now you've, you've kind of steered that dog into an area that it can't really get the odor that it needs to work. So that's one of my other pet peeves, so. Perfect, thank you very much. That was excellent. And Miss Michelle Dorham, what is something, another thing that you find cringeworthy as a trial official or an instructor that you see people doing a trial that you may have provided advice for, but you still see people doing a trial anyway? <laughs> This isn't so much mechanics as it is a mindset. I find it very difficult to sway the mindset of placement being a valid or important portion of a trial experience. I have very good friends even who believe that a trial is a competition against the 28 to 49 other dogs in the event. And I'm constantly trying to remind or shift the perspective in that, first of all, not everyone has the same experience throughout the day. The environment changes, the odor changes, you're also you running your dog, right? So it's very, very unfair to you both to even suggest that you're competing against the teams um, that are participating in the event with you, that it is really a test for you and your canine partner to see if you pass. And if you don't, then you don't. I secretly wish that uh, officials would stop listing the times in the uh, now abbreviated award ceremony even. I think that it puts a lot of focus on it. Um, what I tell students that have really badass, fast dogs, like those really powerful ones where it's like, dang, look at, like they just smoke a search that if those teams don't place, then we should probably be looking at maybe what happened in the environment or was there a handling snafu or um, did you interrupt your dog in their problem solving that day? Like if you don't place with a badass dog, then maybe there's something to look at, but otherwise it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. And there's a quote, uh, I can't remember who said it. I apologize that I, I don't have the accreditation handy, but that comparison is the thief of joy. And um, I think that it really applies because competing with our dogs can be such a satisfying, rewarding, bonding experience. And you can feel like you had such a great day and you go back and look at the results and you're like, 26th? We came in 20, like what? We did, like, it felt so great. It was great. 
and the number means nothing based on, you know, the experience and the joy that you felt together that day. Very good point. Thank you. And I think that's a good thing for everyone to keep in mind that having the proper perspective is extraordinarily important. <laughs> so Miss Michelle Ellardson, did you have something that you wanted to add as far as another thing that you find cringeworthy and that you may have pointed out to your students and yet they're still doing a trial anyway? <laughs> yeah. So, uh-huh. Um, I hope they're not doing it in trial because, um, there, there will be not so nice words coming from me. <laughs> Perhaps things will be thrown. I'm not sure. No, I, I, it's completely from a CEO perspective. Uh, when I'm doing the briefing in the morning, people who have not read the rule book, that drives me absolutely crazy. I was asked at a briefing if the car doors would be unlocked for their vehicle search. Like that, that's some pretty basic stuff there. <laughs> I don't know what you're asking your dog to search, but that's not what we're going to be doing today. Um, yeah, it's just so we do pop quizzes in class on rules. Um, mostly, mostly NACSW because that's the one I'm most familiar with, but. We throw others in there too, because I know people trial it different for different organizations and stuff. But if any one of my students asked if the vehicle doors would be open for their vehicle search, I would have a there would I would have a coronary, I think. <laughs> and that's a really good one to point out. And there have been, I'm sure everyone has an example of this over the years of a question or something you have at a trial. One for myself, I heard from another official, was a competitor was working inside of a search. She called alert, it was incorrect. And she continued searching. And now the official saying being like, um, no, that's that's not how this works. You know, you're all set, you know, con you know, not congratulations, but okay, off you go. And she's her fit. This is not what we do in training. I'm still allowed to search. So I'm going to find my other hides. And like, no, this is a trial. This is not training. And she broke down in complete hysterics in the middle of the search. And this poor official had to sit there and console this person and make them feel better and walk them out. And the whole shebang is like, good Lord, be like, <laughs> No, like you need to understand the difference between training and trialing. And it's sad at the moment for that person, but at the same point, it's like, good grief. <laughs> you need to understand the rules. So to wrap this up, forever. we're going to do another little round table with everybody. So we'll start off with Michael again. For anyone who may be listening to this, be like, oh no, I think I'm doing these things. <laughs> what would you say as far as a, an overall piece of advice for how they may be able to tell whether or not they're doing something that is not helping themselves or their dogs in the long run when it comes to trialing. So my overall piece of advice would be to film, film yourself as much as possible and buy film whenever you have access to it. I know a lot of people who only buy like first place runs and things like that. And I think that's a huge mistake. If you buy anything, you need to buy the failed runs. But you, there are things that you do in the moment under stress that you will never be made aware of until you watch it back or have someone tell you that it happened. And sometimes this happens, normally this happens because your instructor tells you or a friend who is volunteering or the judge tells you or whatever it is. But I've had students get their trial videos back, watch the video and tell me straight to my face, that's not what happens. Like that's the video right there. So um, if you want to be able to change your behavior, you won't be able to do that unless you recognize that you actually did something. So watch yourself and listen to when other people tell you, you did something. Uh, don't say, I didn't do that. And like, yeah, if your instructor is telling you stop doing this, it's because you did it. Thank you. 
Miss Cara, is, what kind of advice would you give to people who think that, oh, I may be doing some of these things, or I don't know if I'm doing something? How would they be able to figure out if something they may or may not be doing a trial is hurting them? So I agree. The videos are a wonderful thing. Back in the day, there were no videos. So you just had to take the kind words of a volunteer if they came out and told you, hey, do you know you were up your dog's butt half the time? No, didn't know that. Um, I would say when you feel like you want to say something out of your mouth during the trial that's not an alert or a word of finish, don't do it. Just keep it quiet. Just enjoy that moment. And if you feel yourself coming closer to your dog, take the step back and everyone gets nervous, right? Everyone. If you feel like you're coming off the rails or losing your stuff at a trial, take a moment and just stop with you and your dog, pet them. I don't care. Take a deep breath and then restart yourself. Cause I've seen a lot. I've judged a lot. I've seen it a lot where people, you can see it where it starts coming off the wheels. The bus is about to hit the brick. And if they would just take a moment and just stop for a second and take a deep breath, they would get it all back together again. So I think that's something that we forget. Yeah. The time's clock ticking, but it's, two seconds to do that versus 30 seconds of searching for that threshold hide that Michelle said earlier. Perfect. Thank you very much. Okay. Miss Michelle Dorham, what are your thoughts on this? As far as someone is listening to this going, Oh no, I think I may have been doing some of these things, or I don't know if I'm doing any of these things. What, what would you tell them as far as how to tell whether or not they may be in danger territory? <laughs> um, first I would say, I have made all the mistakes. I get it. I've been there. I have learned things the hard and embarrassing way. And it's mortifying some of the mistakes I have made. Um, learned things along the way. And in my defense, training has shifted a lot since the very early days as well. So we know better, we do better, right? Um, so to that end, I would agree completely with Michael. Create or purchase your videos. If you do not have video service available in your trial event, then ask your instructor. If you're not working with an instructor, ask someone in your life to video you. They're are multiple things that can be ascertained regarding the connection, maybe possible interferences that we're making, blatant mistakes that we're making, things that absolutely create false alerts, things that uh, do or do not allow a dog to, to finish a problem that we are directly responsible for. And if you don't purchase the videos, I don't want to hear how your dog messed up a search. It's probably not the dog. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. That's another cringy, cringy, cringy thing is, yeah, no, your dog didn't false alert. <laughs> There's a very, very small chance that it was fully the dog's mistake. And if it was, then still buy the video because there's a training opportunity there. There's something that's unclear that can be resolved. And if it wasn't the dog, then you can still figure that out 
by having your instructor, or if you are an instructor, having another instructor view your videos and, and see what's going on. Um, and as Michael said, it's a nice memento to keep that first place search or that first place trial videos, but it's a, a sentimental thing to hang on to and look back, you know, when your dog's retired or not no longer with us or something, but it doesn't help you as far as learning and training and connecting with the dog you have. Buying the ones that maybe weren't successful or didn't feel good. You know how sometimes you pass it, it's like, ugh, that was woo, kind of got lucky on that one. Like there are things that can be learned by purchasing the video. NACSW allows GoPros now, but they do not give a full and accurate picture of how the handler is participating in the search. It really only gives a very limited point of view and could be better than nothing. But if videos are not available for your trials, it's really important to have something set up for you and videoed for how you handle blind because it's different. Even if you don't think that you handle differently, you, pro you probably will just because of the nerves and our propensity to direct our dog unconsciously when we know that where the heights are. Exactly. All very, very good points. And just to piggyback on that blind hide sentiment, I cannot tell you the very handful of times I've had my husband help me in training and I've set up a blind hide with him and suddenly all of my knowledge, expertise, nerve, it's just, told, it's him. He doesn't care. He could care less. And I'm sitting there like a bumbling fool. He's like, you've been doing this for how long? Because you don't look like it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> So thank you very much. That was very good. And Ms. Michelle Ellertson, what are your final thoughts on this as far as uh, cringeworthy things and then how people may still be getting themselves into trouble at trial or any other final thoughts that you wanted to share? I mean, if we look at how do I know, I don't know if I'm doing some of these things. I always look at consistency. So before, before I can you know, develop a training plan or anything, I look at consistency. Are we, you know, and we talked about placements not really mattering at all, which I, I agree, but are we consistent in our work in trial? Are we consistent in our work in training? Is everything the same? Do we follow along the same? And if there's a, there's, if there's a significant divide in the way that the success or productivity looks when we're training and the way that it looks when we're trialing, then we kind of can go down this path of saying, okay, well, what about that? And I think everybody has kind of hit the, hit the nail on the head with video. There's no other way to know aside from getting video of those stressful searches. And then you can kind of pull it apart a little bit. Am I up my dog's butt? Did I rush the threshold? What are my, what is my propensity to, to manage the dog when I'm in a stressful situation? All of those things we can kind of start to tease out, but unless you have somebody telling you like, Hey, yeah, you did those things. There's no other way to know it, except it, am I being consistent? If I'm not being consistent in, in whatever way that means for me, um, you know, I personally have high drive working line dogs. So we tend to finish in a particular place when we trial. But if that starts to waver, if that starts to go back and forth and up and down, now I know I have to reevaluate 
what I'm doing during those searches. And then I probably have to reevaluate some of my training plan for my dog. Does my dog have the skills to support what I'm trying to put him through? And cause that's a, that's a piece of it too. It's, you know, we want to say that it, it's, it's all about us, but it's also about what we're teaching our dog during those training moments. And did, did we evaluate, uh, or did we create supportive plan for him to understand the things that we need him to understand for whatever, you know, whatever venue, whatever level, whatever element we're going to take them into, but consistency. And especially like if we're talking NACSW elite, I think looking at the, you know, not placement, but pointage and how hides found. And is that kind of along the consistency? What is the percentage of hides found? All of that kind of stuff. And if that's all over the place, then yeah, the chances that you're doing some of this stuff is probably pretty high. <laughs> Figuring out which one of the things is the next is the next struggle. And that's where video comes into play, I think. Perfect. Well, I want to thank you all. This was very, very interesting. I hope it gave Michelle Ellickson some ideas of things that she can touch upon in her webinar. Um, oh, and again, I'm hoping that everyone who listens to this, please take that webinar. It's going to be released. We're hoping we'll have some dates and information for you soon. It's going to be excellent. And anyone who is trialing, you're going to want to take it because you don't want to do these things because we want to stop stressing out our poor trial officials. And we also <laughs> want you to have better results. <laughs> so as you can tell, there are plenty of things <laughs> that we could be potentially doing as competitors that are making the skin crawl for our trial officials. And again, these are things that are very common that even those very same trial officials may have done themselves earlier on in their careers when maybe they were baby handlers and they were baby competitors. But it's important for us to keep these things in mind so that we know that it doesn't serve us well. It doesn't serve us, our dogs well in the end. But I really hope this piqued your interest because again, Michelle Ellerson is gonna be putting together a webinar for Setwork University where she delves into more detail into all of this. We're hoping to have the final dates ready for you as far as the details of when you'd be able to register. There'll be a live version as well as a fully edited recorded version that you'll have continual access to. So no deadlines, you don't have to fret or stress that you're gonna lose access. <laughs> Once you purchase it, it's yours forever. So we're really looking forward to that webinar and we urge everyone to check it out. So I really do want to sincerely thank all of our speakers who were involved in this roundtable. Again, it was Michelle Ellertson, Michelle Dorham, Cara Schussner, and Michael McManus. These are all excellent, very talented, experienced, knowledgeable, and just very good instructors. <laughs> so if you ever have an opportunity to work with them, either virtually or in person, please do so because you can learn a lot from them. But as always, we want to hear from you guys. Are there any other topics that you would be interested in us covering in our podcast? These can be one-off podcast episodes, or they can be these roundtable discussions, such as what we had today. We want to hear from you. We want to make sure that we are covering the things that you all are interested in. So we will be posting this episode up on the Setwork University Facebook page and group. So you're more than welcome to post any questions that you may have there, and we would love to hear from you. But as always, thanks so much for listening. Happy training. We look forward to seeing you soon.